pastor was spending some time on the mission field with Cameron Townsend, who was years ago the founder, president of Wycliffe Bible Translators. And there was an interesting fact that he found out on the visit that he had not known before. It was that the Gospel of Mark is the most translated portion of Scripture in all of the Bible. But it makes sense when you think about it. What's the first portion of Scripture that you would want to translate in a new language? Well, you would want to give them something of the life of Jesus Christ. And it's the Gospel of Mark that's the shortest. It's more condensed so that they can more quickly get that word into uh, the hands of those who need to see and read the Word of God. And it's because the Gospel of Mark so beautifully portrays who Jesus is. All the Gospels do that, but it powerfully portrays who Jesus is. And when we began to see Christ, simply Christ, we say, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Jesus is like a magnet. We just need to introduce people to Christ and watch the radical change in their life. So we're studying the Gospels, in particular the Gospel of Mark, in looking at the life of Christ. So I urge you to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And here's the situation. We read in verse 1 that after a few days, that is, after the healing of the leper, and you have to remember that Mark's Gospel is not necessarily strictly chronological. He may skip over a, th a few things, but it certainly is after the miraculous healing of the leper that we read about and studied last week from Mark chapter 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Capernaum was the adopted home of Jesus Christ. His boyhood home was Nazareth, but now his place of operation was the village on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. So many people gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Jesus had been on a traveling tour of the synagogues in the whole area. We read about that in chapter 1 and verse 39. He had been on the road. He traveled throughout the Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The word of God being proclaimed and the power of God being demonstrated. And what a mighty trip that was. But he had to remain outside of the populated areas. Last verse of chapter 1. Remember he warned the leper who was cleansed not to tell anybody, but he couldn't keep quiet. And he blabbed all over town what had happened to him and to all of his relatives. And the result was that Jesus now was restricted. He no longer had the freedom. He was limited in where he could go. And when he came home, he came home to incredible popularity. The scripture tells us that the streets were crowded, the passageways in the town, the town square jammed and packed with people, all wanting to hear the word of Jesus Christ. Now, this had happened before. Chapter 1, verse 33, when he was in, Nazareth, when he was in uh, Capernaum. At the end of a very long day, the whole town gathered at the door. And so Jesus comes home and receives a hero's reception 
The crowd was mixed. I'm sure there were new believers. There were seekers. There, there were the curious and the critical, all wanting to hear from the very lips of this amazing Messiah. By the way, Hebrew hospitality was very gracious. Often, uh, the Jews would open their door in the morning, and an open door meant you could come in at any time. You never has to be, had to be asked in. And the door would often stay open until the evening when they would close it before they would go to sleep. Everyone was free to come and go, and this house was open. We don't know if this is where Peter lived. We don't know if Jesus was staying somewhere else, but this small house was open, and it was jammed full of people. It's possible that Jesus was meeting in the house to kind of avoid being in the streets where the crowds were. You see, the healing ministry of Christ was not his primary ministry, but that's what most people wanted. What was his primary ministry? Well, we read in chapter 1 and verse 38, he came to preach. Everyone's looking for you. Jesus said, let's go somewhere else, to the other towns and villages, because I've come to preach the gospel. That's his primary purpose. And he would preach, repent, turn from your sin, and believe the good news. But the crowds, they had a different agenda. And so maybe Jesus was in the house hoping that he could teach, get back to his teaching ministry, and that's exactly what he was doing, but the crowds would not leave him alone. And what happened next astounded everyone who was jam-packed into that little room. Look at verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through the roof, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. It is surprising what some people will do to get people to Jesus. They will stop at nothing. I'm amazed at their determination, aren't you? Amazing commitment and determination. I mean, the effort that it took to carry a man like this who is a paralytic, heavy, I don't, you have no idea how heavy the guy is, but it took four of them to carry him on a stretcher. They were bold and they're creative in their attempt. And the Fantastic Four carried this palsied man and met every obstacle in their way, the biggest obstacle being the crowd. I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person who, when he meets a few obstacles, is quick to turn aside. The crowd's there. Ah, we might as well go home. Never get there to see Jesus. If I'm going to a sporting event and I'm so late that I'm packed in traffic, I just as soon turn and go back home and watch it on TV. And I think there were maybe some of those who felt that same way. Maybe they wanted to quit. But maybe it was the man on the mat who said, no, I must see Jesus. Or maybe some of his friends who said, we don't care what it takes. We're getting this guy to the Messiah. I love that tenacity. I love that commitment. Their approach was a bit unorthodox, a bit unconventional. In fact, downright inappropriate in the eyes of some, I'm sure. But they were desperate. 
And when you're desperate, nothing will stop you from getting to Jesus Christ. So someone said, take it to the roof. Now, in our culture, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in Palestinian culture, it did. You see, most homes had a flat roof. And there were stairs on the outside of the home. And the flat roof would uh, have laid over maybe mud type of walls or, or whatever walls they had, stone walls. They would have timbers laid over the, the small little house, maybe two or three feet apart. And then crossways sticks and branches tightly packed. And then on top of the branches, sometimes 12 inches of dirt also tightly packed almost into in kind of like mud formation. And in fact, William Barclay says some of the more uh, nicer homes even had a good crop of grass growing on the top. It was serviceable living space. It made a small home much larger. And because of the beautiful climate uh, in, in Israel, people would love to spend time on the roof. They would relax there, sleep there, have their meals there, meet friends there, get away from the rest of the family there. It was a great place on top of the roof. And so these guys says that's where we're going. Now carrying a briar up with a man on it, up some narrow steps, that was not an easy thing. But no obstacle would stop them. The Bible tells us once they got to the roof, they began to dig through it. They would dig through the dirt and the grass, remove the laths, move the tiles. Can't you imagine what was happening? Jesus is teaching, everyone is crowded in, and suddenly a little bit of debris begins to fall from the ceiling. I said, what is this? And then a shaft of light comes through. And then clods of dirt begin to fall on the people on the bottom. And I imagine there were some shouts of, what in the world do you think you're doing? Who do you guys think you are? The homeowner is saying, boy, I hope I'm insured by Chapman Agency here. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> it begins to tally up what it's going to cost to repair the roof. By the way, it's not that difficult to repair it. And I'm sure these guys were committed to doing it. I don't think they had permission. This is very inappropriate. Vandalism? Yeah. <laughs> but they were desperate. And they had to see Jesus Christ. And Jesus continues to teach. What is driving these guys? I'll tell you what's driving them in one word. Faith. Faith. In fact, we read down a little bit uh, further, verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith. Faith is something that you can see, demonstrable. Their faith was evident. You see, they were totally convinced that Jesus could heal their friend, and nothing would keep them from getting their friend to Jesus. I love their tenacity. They're stubborn. They're unrelenting. They will not quit, and that's what faith is like faith is so convinced that something is true that nothing will stop faith and until it achieves its goal. 
You know, I think this is a beautiful illustration of a very difficult verse that we find in Matthew chapter 11. Um, Matthew 11 and verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcibly advancing, forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. I learned this verse in a slightly different translation that says the kingdom of heaven comes with violence and violent men take it by force. And a lot of people read that verse in Matthew 11 and say, what in the world does that mean? I think this is exactly what it means. It means your faith is so tenacious you will not stop until you reach your goal. Kent Hughes put it this way, those who really want something spiritually go for it and they're the ones who get it. And it's the weak of faith who are easily sidetracked. It's those whose passion is somewhat lingering, lacking with, with enthusiasm who are easily deterred. Why, the smallest bump in the road stops them. But not these guys. Believing faith finds a way when timidity is stymied. And so driven by great love for a friend and great faith in the power of Jesus Christ, they were convinced that Jesus could, and they were determined that Jesus would. I can remember when I came to faith in Christ, no one could have stopped me from coming. I don't care how hard they would have made it. At that point in time, I was willing to do anything it took, when in reality, all it takes is to believe and to trust. Do you love souls like that? Do you love souls so much you're, do, you're willing to do anything it takes to get people to Jesus? Are you personally so desperate like the man with the illness that nothing's going to keep you from getting to Jesus and you'll enlist all the help you can find? When you get to that place, then you know something is serious. But if you think that their tenacity is exceptional, look at the response of Jesus Christ. Uh, One Bible commentator said this, there is never an incident recorded in scripture where Jesus got uptight or upset or disturbed about any interruption from someone who was seeking him. Are you ever disturbed with interruptions? Why, the very word gets you upset, right? And we have all kinds of interruptions. Interruptions are phone calls. Interruptions are people. Interruptions are all kinds of things. I do my best work when I'm not interrupted. And Jesus was never uptight when an interruption came. He saw it as a ministry opportunity. I can just see Jesus teaching, and then the dirt begins to fall and then the clods come down, and he probably said something. Watch this, guys. This is going to be good. And the mat comes down with the palsied man, and Jesus sees their faith. And his response was amazing. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. James chapter 2 says something about visible faith. 
It says faith without works is dead, right? Faith without works is useless. James says, someone says, I have faith. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's useless. Faith is demonstrated by what it does. And so Jesus saw their faith. He was cognizant of their desires, well aware of their belief. And our faith, by the way, is on display constantly, not just to Jesus, but to others around us. If you are a person of faith, you cannot hide it. True faith is always visible. And so Jesus makes a shocking declaration about forgiveness. Now, I'm not sure this is what they were after, right? I mean, they were bringing the guy to Jesus to be healed. But this is the first time in which Mark's gospel talks about forgiveness from the lips of Christ. John baptized for forgiveness, that, with, that is, with forgiveness in mind, but now forgiveness is being offered by the Lord Jesus himself. And I don't know if this is really what this guy was after, but Jesus knew this is what he really needed. And I love the fact that when you and I sometimes bring our requests to God, Lord, this is what I want, he gives us what we really desire, even though it may not be what we requested. Because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And the greatest need of all the human race, the greatest need of every man, woman, boy, or girl is forgiveness. Forgiveness from Almighty God. Warren Worsby said, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need of all the human race. It costs the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing, and the results last forever. Forgiveness. Isn't that a beautiful word? And if indeed the human race if our greatest problem is sin, and sin brings with it an eternal penalty, then the greatest word for us to hear is, you are forgiven. And that's exactly what Jesus said. Now, some people think that this guy was sick because of his sin. I don't think the scripture proves that. It's possible. And there are some physical illnesses that are a result of our sin. Not all physical illness is because a person is a sinner. But organically, sin and disease are connected. There would be no disease if there was no sin in the human race. And so in some sense, they are connected, and Jesus is the one, Jehovah is the one, Psalm 103 says, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. But in the Jewish mind, it was clear. If you had an illness... It was because of your personal sin that you weren't repenting of. It was not just the distant connection with Adam and original sin. It was because of some sin that you had committed and that you had not confessed. And your sickness was God's punishment on your sin. Remember what they said of the blind man? Who sinned? Him or his parents? That was their thinking. And so here's a guy who apparently is a sinner because he's sick. And we don't know what he's done. It must have been pretty bad. Jesus 
jumps over the physical healing first and goes right to the spiritual problem. I think the friends might have been a little bit upset. This is not what we came for. And I know the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were shocked. In fact, this is where the criticism comes in. And this is the first of five stories that introduce official opposition to Jesus Christ. Up until this point, popularity growing and increasing without any restriction. And now five stories are brought together by Mark to show that Jesus is going to face horrible opposition, ultimately ending in his death. Some people might have thought it was very cruel. The teachers thought it was blasphemous. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Now, we shouldn't be too hard on these guys at the very beginning. These teachers of the law had made their way, some of them, all the way from Jerusalem. They were the strict guardians of orthodoxy, and this was a scouting party sent to investigate this person called Jesus, whom everyone said was doing amazing miracles. And so they were there to investigate. They had a front row seat, seats of honor. Most everyone else was standing. They were sitting They had been compared unfavorably to Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 22. Remember the people in the synagogue when they heard Jesus teach? They said, boy, he doesn't teach like the teachers of the law. This guy's got authority. And so maybe they were a bit jealous. We know jealousy is going to grow. And they want to investigate, and and now they're upset. They think this is blasphemous. Jesus is too popular to be ignored, but he's too controversial to be embraced. And now he blasphemes, acting like he's God. Only God can forgive sin. By the way, that's true. Only God can forgive sin. Isaiah 43, 25 I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. That's quoted again in the book of Hebrews. What a wonderful thing it is. God Almighty is the only one who forgives, and forgiveness is exclusively his prerogative. So they reasoned, only God can forgive sin. This guy's not God. So he's blaspheming. Their logic was wrong. There was an alternative. (laughs) Only God can forgive sin. This guy's God. He's the Messiah. But you see, they weren't willing to to even consider that, to entertain that idea. And the crux crux of the controversy from the very get-go is that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and the Son of God, making himself equal with God, doing things only God can do. He must die, blasphemer. And they were pretty consistent with that message all the way through. Now, verse 8 says, Immediately Jesus knew in his heart that this is what they were thinking. Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in theirs. I don't think it's just because he read, you know, their, uh, their outward countenance. I mean, that's possible. But he knew the hearts of people. 
He could read their minds. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? What things? Blasphemy. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? So he asked this very penetrating question. Which is easier? And by the way, which is easier to say? It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say you were healed. Why? Because you can't verify the first. You can't substantiate it. You can say your sins are forgiven, and how do you know it's true? It's not easier to do. It's easier to say. So Jesus said, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this guy, get up and walk? And I'm sure if he gave any time for the question to be answered, people would have said, well, it's harder to heal somebody. But it was a rhetorical question, and before probably many of them could answer, the Bible tells us, verse 10, but you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Jesus said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, the crowd parted, and he walked out in full view of everyone. Oh, that would have been rich. That would have been thrilling. And now we have the Lord Jesus giving us an incredible demonstration. Notice he, he healed the man so that you might know there's a purpose to his healing. All the miracles have this same purpose so that you might know that Jesus is the real deal, so that you might know that he is the Son of God and believe in his name, so that you might know that he has power over uh, sin and sickness, that he has authority so that you might know it's interesting, when you go through the story, Jesus saw their faith. He knew that they had faith. Jesus saw their doubts. He knew what people were thinking in their hearts. But he said, you don't know who I am. You really don't know who I am. And he uses the title, the Son of Man, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority. This is a title that Jesus will, or that Mark uses some 14 times. You can count it 80 times in the Gospels. The Son of Man. What does that mean? So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority. I'll tell you what it means. It means that Jesus is none other than Messiah come in the flesh. Because Jews who knew their Bible, and especially the prophecy Daniel, would have remembered this great text. Daniel chapter seven and verse 13. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked and there was before me one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And when Jesus said, so that the Son of Man, so that you'll know that me, that, that, that me, that the one who's taking this title, that I am the Son of Man, so that you know that I have authority, get up and walk. <clears throat> you see, the rabbis believed that you couldn't be healed physically until you were forgiven spiritually first. And so when Jesus healed him physically, 
It confirmed that he had the authority, the power to forgive spiritually. And they were totally at a loss for words. Jesus is God and has the power to forgive. No man on earth can forgive, no angel in heaven, no church in council, no minister in his vestures. No one can forgive sin except God alone, and Jesus forgave his sin. And the proof was he healed him to boot. Jesus heals in a word. And all authority, Jesus said in Matthew 28, has been given to me. Authority over death, authority over demons, authority over doctrine, authority over disease. That's what Mark is showing in his early chapters. This guy has authority. And he's not like a mere teacher. He's God come in the flesh. And if the word of healing works, so does the word of forgiveness. If Jesus came out of the tomb alive, conquering death, then anything else he wants to do, he can do. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. Conquer death and everything else is easy. And Jesus amazed them all. Notice the middle of verse 12. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, except for the teachers of the law. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> they realize they're between a rock and a hard place, and there's no way that they can really counteract all that Jesus is doing in the wave of popularity and the power of his words and the power of his healing. And I love the, the last phrase of verse 12. They said to one another, we've never seen anything like this. I mean, this is truly amazing. But you see, the whole heart of the gospel is seen here. The point is this. Man needs forgiveness, and Jesus provides it. Man needs forgiveness, and Jesus provides it by his death and by his word, by his grace and by his mercy. We are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like a man when we criticize. We are most like God when we forgive. Because to forgive is the divine prerogative. And that's what Jesus came to do. I've come not to be served, he says in Mark 10, verse 45, but to serve and to give my life as your ransom so that you can put your faith in me and I can say, son, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever heard Jesus say that to your soul? Have you? Oh, some of you are... You're wallowing in the, in the guilt of your own sin and you know your sin is real and you know you can't do anything about it and you've prayed but it doesn't seem to work and you're still covered up, overwhelmed, drowning in sin and guilt. My friend, Jesus Christ died to forgive you. And the father looks at the sacrifice of the son and says, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. He receives him into heaven after the crucifixion. 
And it's the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. God accepts the sacrifice of his son. How come you don't? Once you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when he does, we go free. Do you imagine how happy this guy was when he walked out of the room? (laughs) Danced out of the room probably? Shouted his way back home, forgiven. Not just healed, forgiven. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you today. So whatever it takes, get people to Jesus. Because their greatest problem will be met by his great power to forgive. And when you come to Jesus, hear him say, you are forgiven. When Abraham Lincoln was asked what he was going to do to the southern armies when they surrendered, how would he treat the rebels? The questioner thought for sure that there would be dire consequences for these who would cause such bloodshed. And this is what Lincoln said. I will treat them as if they had never left. That's grace. And when you come to God, a sinner, a rebel against his law, knowing that there are dire consequences hanging over your head, Jesus said, I paid the price, and I will treat you like you never left. Let's pray. Lord, there are souls here this morning who have never heard you say to their heart, You are forgiven. Lord, I pray at this very moment they will cry out to you, Lord, save me. Lord, heal me. Lord, cleanse me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And we know that any person who prays an honest prayer from their heart to yours will have forgiveness because you said, whoever comes to me, I will never turn aside. Lord, you delight to see people come. You're looking for faith, and when you see it, you celebrate it. May there be faith here this morning. Forceful people take heaven by force, and nothing will stop them until they hear you say, forgiven. May it be so this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.